Hello, welcome to It's Friday, your mail plus guide to the best of what's happening in the world of arts and entertainment. My name's Jim White and this week we'll be heading back in time with Harlots, a new BBC drama about the wild and dangerous London of the 17th century. Have a boarding house for young ladies. <laughs> plus we'll be chatting to the wonderful comedian Ian Stone about his new book, celebrating his love for the jam whose leader, Paul Weller, he tells us, remains at 63, the coolest man on the planet. He's still got his own hair uh, and his own teeth, and he's the same size he was when he was 20. Um, and he's the mod father. First, though, to shine a light on the best of the week's entertainment, I'm joined by the Daily Mail's television writer, Claudia Connell, the Mail's music critic, Adrian Thrills, and the Mail's Boswell of the New York scene, Jackie Stephen. Um, Adrian, it's yet another week where a big name has got an album out. The, the record industry doesn't seem to have noticed there's been a virus. Uh, one big name. We've actually got three big names this week. There's a new album by Alanis Morissette, which is uh, a kind of a much more kind of um, kind of polished, less angry record than her uh, 1995 classic Jagged Little Pill. There's a spoken word album by Lana Del Rey, which is, uh, again, I would say, not a patch on her, her musical work. And also, of course, the real big hitter is the new Taylor Swift album. And it's one of those dramatic changes of direction that artists go through every now and then, a bit like uh, the rapper Snoop Dogg doing his reggae album or David Bowie doing his drum and bass album in the 90s, which less said about that, the better. But Taylor, she's gone indie and she's collaborating with a guy called Aaron Desner, who's the guitarist in a band called The National who are quite rightly described as America's Radiohead. So it's a million miles away from both the kind of pop of Shake It Up and um, also the kind of country stuff that she originally came from. I think we're going to hear a track which is a duet with uh, another kind of alternative rock hero, Justin Vernon of Bon Iver, and this is called Exile. Second, third and hundredth chances Balancing on breaking bridges Those eyes add insult to injury Jackie, I'm on, uh, I'm on Zoom, so I can watch you cavorting around your <laughs> sitting room to that one. <laughs> Taylor Swift, one of your favourites? Um, yeah, I, I rather admire her. I like the music, but I think she's a fantastic role model to young people. When a lot of the pop stars are taking drugs or dying in hotel rooms, she's somebody who just seems to get on with the work. And I think that what she's done in lockdown is great. You know, she just used this as an opportunity to do more work. What's going on in the States? Uh, I believe the Emmys have just come out, haven't they? Uh, the Emmy nominations came out for the 72nd Primetime Emmys, and there's some interesting nominations and some also interesting omissions. Reese Witherspoon, who did uh, Little Fires Everywhere, which was a brilliant series, and the series is up for nomination. She wasn't nominated. Neither was Harry Styles for his stint on Saturday Night Live. The thing I'm most excited about is... Brand, Randy Rainbow. If you haven't heard or seen Randy Rainbow, I tell you, do get his show on YouTube. He does political satires to the tunes of musicals. 
and he is absolutely inspired. He made his daytime talk debut this week, and I think it's only a matter of time before Netflix takes his series. It's absolutely brilliant, and he's up against uh, James Corden and Jimmy Kimmel, you know, big hitters, and last year, I think James Corden just about pipped him to the post on it, and that's up for the short series nomination, and he's brilliant, 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 and I think you're going to hear an awful lot of him. Uh, Jodie Comer, isn't she in there for uh, Killing Eve? Yeah, Josie's up there for Best Actress for Killing Eve. The series is up for Best Series as well. Uh, other British interests. Matthew McFadden is up for Succession for Best Supporting Actor. Brian Cox is up for Best Actor, in, also in Succession. So there's quite a lot of British interest this year. And The Crown is up for Best Series again. And Olivia Colman up for Best Actress. So the Brits are still very much in Hollywood. Uh, Claudia, does it make a difference to a person's career? Have you noticed that, that they suddenly uh, go into overdrive once they've got an Emmy nomination? What, you mean in the, as in lots sort of the offers of work pour in? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I think so, especially in America. It makes a, a huge difference to a, a, a British star to get nominated. I think one of the actors from uh, Normal People is nominated, isn't he? Is it Paul Meskell? But I think... Daisy Edgar Jones wasn't. Have I, have I got that right? So that that was interesting. Yeah, I thought. I think I saw Paul Meskell uh, toasting himself on uh, on Twitter. Obviously, yeah. very very. I hated exciting. that series. I couldn't stand it. That really uh, divided uh, people. Uh, I loved it, but I know so uh, many people who said I they were just bored, rigid by it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that is always what happens with nominations. People are very divided when your favourites not in there. There are people I don't think should be in there, but I think that the influence of Black Lives Matter is very much there. I see a lot of token with certain nominations that people just because they're black I think have been nominated and I think that's grossly unfair I know that people want to they're saying they're trying to make it fairer by showing more diversity but there are no short dark Welsh people on the short list so you know if anyone's going to be complaining about not being there I'm going to stick it to them because they have got no short Welsh people up there <laughs> no Anthony Hopkins this year uh, Adrian is there, are there any music awards about yeah, well, the, the one award that comes around in the summer is the Mercury Music Prize, of course, which um, tends to be a, a rather kind of strange award. We never really know what it's for. Is it artistic excellence? Is it debut albums? Is it kind of to break new artists? This year, they've, they've gone very much just with the best 12 albums. And um, unusually, it's actually features a lot of records that I really love and we've reviewed in the paper and also featured on the podcast. There's Charlie X's Lockdown album. There's Michael Kiwanuka's wonderful third album, Kiwanuka, which I think is in with a good shout. There's Dua Lipa's banging disco, kitchen disco record, Future Nostalgia, Laura Marling's Song for Our Daughter. Lots of, lots of women on this year's list. And I have to say, it's a really strong list. Uh, sports team, a new band that we've featured, Stormzy's excellent second album. There's some really good stuff on there. You know, when uh, people talk about music things, like music awards there, you might as well have been speaking Turkish just now, because I've <laughs> never heard of any of these people. Unless the Bay City Rollers are in the charts, I know nothing else about anyone, apart from Taylor Swift. Uh, uh, Jackie, well, finger on the pulse, Stephen. Uh, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, uh, Claudia, uh, uh, 
great list of um, names there. Uh, everything seems to be going well in the pot world. You can't say that about TV. I mean, it looks pretty dire, doesn't it? Does it does look What's dire. The big yeah. This week? Well, um, there's a on BBC Two on Wednesday. You can see Harlots, and if, if that sort of sounds familiar, it's it's because it's actually three years old. And this is this really highlights how desperate the scramble for programmes has become because this was originally owned by ITV, and ITV didn't even put it out on their premiere channel. It was relegated to ITV Encore, which is now on a defunct channels and uh, the BBC have bought three series and it's about two rival brothels in London in the 18th century. I mean it's got a really terrific cast actually. Leslie Manville is the madam in charge of the, the very upmarket brothel and then um, Samantha Morton is in charge of the, the slightly less refined brothel so it's, it's basically two madams at war and we, we can listen to a clip here I'm worth at least £50 more I'm leaving. I say when you leave! Men don't respect whores. They respect property. That's for what you made me. Have you no heart? I offer you love. For a harlot, that doesn't exist. Right, Claudia, I think the word uh, right load of old cliche would uh, uh, surmise for that, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I, did, I missed it first time around, as I had never even heard of ITV Encore. But um, I, I thought it was all right. I mean, it's a long way from being the, you know, the best drama on TV, but I, I thought it was, it was okay. Some very dodgy Cockney accents in there. <laughs> I think it would have done a lot better if they'd just called it sluts. You know, I'm a big believer in saying what it is on the tin. <laughs> Jack, is it like that in the States uh, as a final thought? I mean, is it like that in the States? Are they having to put old series back on because they've just not got any new stuff? It's all been stopped because of the coronavirus? Well, there are so many new stations anyway, it doesn't really matter. A lot of the shows are finished now until the autumn. So even though they ran out towards the end of the series and had to do some technological changes just for like the last episodes of the series, but they're all off now until the autumn, so it doesn't make a huge difference. And also you've now got HBO Max, which is showing everything from the beginning. This week, Friends was most watched TV series at the moment. Now, you'd think that everyone had seen enough Friends to last them several lifetimes. But no, HBO Max has done phenomenally well by re-showing Friends. They really love their long series here. And I think that we are going to see more of that. But then they've got plenty of time now to have the new stuff for the autumn. Friends is back. Uh, with that, my thanks to Claudia, Adrian and Jackie. Anyone who's seen Ian Stone on stage will know he's one of the funniest live comedians around, or at least he was until the pandemic put live performance into hibernation. Fortunately for those who've missed Stone's jokes as he delivers his acerbic observations on modern life, he's just published a memoir called To Be Someone. It details his teenage obsession with 1970s new wave music, in particular that of the jam. Since the Edinburgh's festival's been cancelled and I don't have to go up for a ticket to watch him there, Ian joins me now on Zoom. Uh, so, Ian, when did you first become aware of Paul Weller and his band? When you're, say, 13, 14 and you hear bits of music, they just stay with you. If you, if you connect with them, then they stay with you. And I think that was the one for me, really. I was listening to John Peel one evening and um, 
he said in those sort of scouse tones, the flat scouse tones, this next one is in the city by the jam. And I heard it, and as soon as I heard it, I thought, yeah, these these are the ones for me. Because it was singing, there, there, Paul was singing about stuff that you didn't hear other bands singing about. He's singing about social inequality and police brutality and violence and the things that I could see happening around me. And you weren't getting that from, I don't know, Dawn or Brotherhood of Man or Supertramp or anyone like that, you know? So it connected with me in a particular way and it stayed with me. Uh, the book is, uh, I mean, it's about the time, isn't it? It's about the era. I don't think we can say it's a love letter to uh, the late 70s, early 80s. No. But there are certain things that you, you, you indicate that I'd completely forgotten about. For instance, you write about how out of touch we were, how difficult it was to keep in touch with the wider world. I think you mentioned... You knew nothing about Zimbabwe yet. There, there they were in the news. <laughs> well, if you think it's about- a different era, isn't it? Yeah, yeah you know, we we both kind of lived through it, and we kind of think it was yesterday, but like it's completely different. Well, I, I mean, pre-internet obviously is is a completely different time, and if you think about that, was an example I was given. It just because it happened. Something happened in Zimbabwe. I can't remember what I wrote in the book, but something happened in Zimbabwe on a particular date that was also relevant to what was happening in the book. And if you miss the news at six or at 10, that was it. I mean, that was it. There was no other way of finding out. You could wait for the papers the next day. And if you missed that, it was gone. If we think now to 24 hour rolling news and you've always got the internet and I, a very, very different time. And it wasn't, no, you're right, it wasn't a love letter to the 70s, but I did want to write a social history as well because, as you say, we feel like it's yesterday, but it is another lifetime. It's a lifetime ago, and things are so different now, and I wanted to talk about that. One of the things that surprised me uh, reading the book was how violent uh, things could be in the music world then. I'd completely forgotten. You write about a Sham 69 concert uh, in Finsbury Park, which is frankly terrifying, isn't it? Well, it was terrifying. I, I, myself and another young Jewish kid uh, went along to this um, Sham 69 concert. We are 15, maybe 16 years old. And it was maybe two and a half thousand essentially racist and some Nazi skinheads uh, all doing Nazi salutes and fighting. And it, it, it was terrifying. Of course it was. I don't even, I didn't even like the music that much. <laughs> sort of pub, sub pub rock. Who knows what I, what I was doing there? Yes. The violence was quite full on. Interesting enough. I, Paul Weller um, read the book and he phoned me up to tell me how much he liked the book. And the first thing he said was about the violence. He said he'd forgotten how violent it was. It wasn't like today when kids, there's regular stabbings and shootings. It was just a random violence that happened on a daily basis. And I, and I wanted to just illustrate that. And then Sham 69 concert, I think, uh, well, that, that, that illustrated it fairly well, I feel. The thing about the jam uh, was that they were angry uh, and the lyrics were angry. You, you described them as uh, a kind of social historians telling us about the time. Yeah. Were, were, you an, were you an angry kid? Well, my home life was pretty toxic. My parents hated each other. I mean, genuinely hated each other. And so I sort of had to I not listen to it, but it was in the house pretty much every day. So I retreated to my room. But yes, you sort of felt like you didn't have a lot in the way of prospects. You're looking at the country. It was a pretty sort of dull grey place, really. And, and um, 
you know, there was a lot of industrial unrest and violence, as we said. I mean, this is a country that ended up electing Margaret Thatcher. So it, it tells you that the country felt like it needed a corrective, I guess. I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that corrective, but that is what it felt like it needed. So I think there was a lot of anger going around. And the thing about Weller is that he articulated that in a way I hadn't heard another adult articulate it before. And, and, he was an adult, but he was only four or five years older than me. And so it was something that I could connect to. But was I an angry kid? Um, yeah, I guess I was, really. And, and that, that's why part of the reason that I tuned in to, to what Paul was singing about. He was also remarkably cool, wasn't he? I mean, he, the, the mod sensibility that he embraced, he was brilliant on stage. He always looked magnificent does he still yeah well, he, he can i mean i i, I did a um an interview for a, um a website an online website and i spoke to him and we were looking at photos and there was a photo of him taken last year in this beautiful suit pinstripe suit and of course he looked cool i mean he looked as cool as it's possible to look you know he really did look amazing yes uh, one he sort of got his he still got his own hair uh, and his own teeth and he's the same size he was when he was 20 um and he's the mod father yes he does look cool but i don't think he tries too hard i think it's just he has the thing about him is i think he was wise before his years you know he's writing songs about the stuff i was talking about um you know social injustice when he was 18 years old so he's always been a bit ahead of the game, I think. And yes, I think uh, uh, cool is such a ridiculous concept, I think. But if anyone embodies it, I think he does. I mean, I Did you? Did you, though, Ian? I, I mean, I, 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 reading the book, <laughs> I, I feel you struggled to, to uh, become cool. Yeah, cool is not really... No, I, I'm, I'm not cool. I, I think the moment you start thinking you're cool, that's quite uncool, isn't it, really? I am... I, um, no, I'm not. And I, now I'm not bothered about it. I mean, listen, I do stand-up comedy for a living. I've written a book. That's quite cool in itself, right? I mean, my kids wouldn't think that. But um, am I cool? It's not really for me to, uh, to answer that question. <laughs> in the days when we could go and see live comedy, those long-lost times yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, of history, uh, you were one of the hardest-working, funniest guys around. When, when did... Humor. When did you realise that 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 humour could be a career? Well, when I was, I met my missus Rosie when I was twenty-one, and she maybe three months after we met, she said to me, uh, "You should do stand-up comedy." Now, at the time, I was an engineer. I was designing air conditioning and heating systems and ventilation systems for office buildings because I was sort of a good Jewish boy and I felt like I should have a proper career, you know? Um, and she said to me, you should do stand-up comedy. And while I thought she was off her head, really, saying that, there was... I was intrigued as well that someone could look at me and think that. So it took me another seven years before I did it. But when, I, when did I think that humour could be a career? About a week before I started doing stand-up comedy. In fact, no, sorry, can I take that back? Actually, what happened was nine months into my comedy career, I got offered a place on a on a course for radio journalism because I was thinking about doing that. And I had to make a decision whether whether I wanted to do radio journalism or stand up comedy. And I actually found myself saying, um, no, I, I think I want to be a stand up comedian. And I think that was the moment 
when I actually committed to it. So nine months in, when I was 28 or so, I guess, would be the time, in fact, when I thought this might actually have some legs, maybe. And how's that anger that you had as a 14-year-old dissipated? Do you still get angry? I mean, apparently Arsenal lost uh, recently. (laughs) Did that make you angry? Sorry, you just broke up there for a minute. I don't know, I'm completely lost. Um, I did it. Yeah, of course. I, yeah, I do get angry. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I am angry at the state of the world. I'm angry at, uh, at our government's incompetence. I'm, there's a lot of things that I'm angry at. I'm angry at the infantile level of our politics. Um, and I use that. What I tend to do is I, I watch the news get a bit angry and then start moaning about it on stage and it comes out funny in the main (laughs) and not always not much moaning about it on stage for the past three months though have you been able to do any gigs yeah i did we do a bit of zoom stuff it's not the same so to be honest it's like playing football in an empty stadium i think it's sort of analogous to that really you're not you're not getting the feedback i mean you are well you can you can you can have a sort of virtual front row and you can hear people laughing but there is nothing like being in a room of 400 people and and you talking and them all laughing i mean properly laughing and you're just sort of surfing that that wave really and um I mean, surfing is a good analogy, I think, for what it's like, because sometimes you're on that wave and you're just surfing along and everything, you're just so on top of things. But one misstep and it can come properly crashing down on your head. And I I like that feeling of danger and I miss that feeling of danger. I mean, really miss it. But, you know, we'll get back to it at some point, I guess. We miss you uh, on stage. In the meantime, we can read your book beautifully illustrated by Phil Jupiter. I didn't realise Phil Jupiter was a cartoonist. Jupiter has done the cartoon and you've written about how things have changed since you were a kid. Yeah, we well, I mean, we had the things we didn't have in the seventies, and we talked about how we would illustrate those. And then he did a, um, and then he did a a, a colour. Uh, panel in the centre of the book with me and Paul Weller and any Jam fans will look at them and know that they are exact copies of of singles and album covers by the Jam. I mean, I knew Phil could draw. I I remember going to Edinburgh about three, four years ago and he was doing a... um, Every every day, uh, he would go into the Scottish National Gallery and uh, copy uh, one of the paintings on his iPad. And he was brilliant at them. They were beautiful copies. And he'd chat away while he was doing it. And people who were interested would come in and watch and listen to him talking and watch him paint. So I knew how good he was. And he did say to me, the thing is about you, Stoney, you're eminently cartoonable. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. Yeah, I see that. And it was just, it was brilliant to collaborate with him. And what was beautiful about it was that he, 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 when he was started out his career, he was Porky the Poet. He used to open for the Style Council. So Weller loved the idea of him doing this as well. So it it felt like a certain, there was a lot of synergy going on. And um, yeah, I'm delighted uh, he, he got, he got involved and he's delighted as well. So that's nice. It's been great talking to you. uh, And you mentioned Edinburgh there. I think, the thought of being up in Edinburgh, well, pastors, we can't do it. There's no, no. no live comedy, but maybe next year. Well, I, you know what? I was meant to be in Glastonbury and that didn't happen either. And I, I find, I mean, listen, it, everyone's suffering, right? Everyone is suffering with it. And we just like to, to get it over with as quickly as possible. But um, I think people have a need 
to communally share stuff. I think they have a need to, to, to communally laugh and to sing along with stuff. And so I think these things will come back again. We're just going to have to bide our time, aren't we? That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Ian. Sadly, that's all we have time for for It's Friday this week. My thanks to Claudia Connell, Adrian Dills and Jackie Stephen for their insights and to Ian Stone for taking us back to the quiet, relaxed and not remotely threatening 1970s. Join me next week for news from the entertainment frontline via Spotify, Apple and Google. Or sign up to Mail Plus for much more exclusive content at mailplus.co.uk. Until then, I'm Jim White. Thanks for your time.